Uh, well, as always, I have the privilege of bringing us God's Word. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4, we're going to look at just four verses, 32 to 35. Acts, chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. If you're following along on a mobile device and you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, um, and it's also going to be on the screen behind me. Acts, chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. This is the reading of God's Word. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us uh, as we begin. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Uh, may you open our hearts and our ears to receive what you would have for us today. Lord, our hearts... Um, once again grieve um, with uh, yet another uh, mass shooting in Texas yesterday. And we pray, God, that um, our hearts would never grow cold or numb, that we would never turn away from the violence and tragedy that seems to continue to plague our world and specifically this country. We pray first for all of those who have lost loved ones, family members, friends, we pray for your comfort and your supernatural peace. But we also pray, God, uh, that you would uh, move the hand of lawmakers, government officials, activists, and we pray for all those who will have a part in moving the needle, who are discerning next steps forward. And we pray for conversations and actions um, that are not partisan in nature, that are not overly political in nature, that places at the center people first, the sacredness of human life. And so, God, we pray uh, for all of our brothers and sisters, for churches, uh, for pastors, for leaders um, who are walking with their congregation through these difficult times. We entrust our lives, their lives, um, this country into your hands. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, if you've been with us, you know that we are currently in a series in the book of Acts, uh, and I think it's a very timely series for us as a church as we find ourselves in this season of growth and transition, and I think the early church in Acts gives us a kind of blueprint or a model as to what we should expect to experience as we now learn to be, you know, learn what it means to be a, a community of Jesus followers in Los Angeles. And just as a quick recap... Uh, I mentioned last week that the first three chapters of Acts, Acts 1 to 3, which we've looked at, are kind of like the honeymoon phase of the church. Things are happening, nothing could go wrong. And then in Acts chapter 4, we get the first instance of persecution uh, when the apostles realize, oh man, following Jesus is going to come with a lot of opposition and resistance. Uh, if you remember, Peter and John are arrested. They're brought before the religious authorities. They're threatened. They're given strict warnings to not preach the gospel anymore. 
And last week we read, we read that upon their release, the first thing these apostles do is they begin to pray. And interestingly, they don't pray for God to fix their circumstances. They don't pray for God to get rid of all the difficult people out there who want to kill them. They pray for courage in the midst of their circumstances. They pray that God would give them the boldness to continue to do what they know they're called to do in the face of all the opposition that's coming their way. And in Acts 4.31, which is exactly where we left off last week, we read that after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is almost like a repeat of Acts 2. In Acts 2, you also had a group of believers gathered together in one space. Suddenly, a sound like the, the blowing of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, shook the whole house where they were sitting, and everyone was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so you read Acts 4.31, and you're like, oh, wait, I thought this already happened in Acts 2. I thought the Holy Spirit came and everyone was filled with the Spirit. Why do they need to be filled again? And I think Luke is showing us that, yes, for those who receive Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit is living inside us all the time. Okay? The Holy Spirit doesn't leave us. The Holy Spirit is in us. But there are these moments when we get to experience that reality in palpable ways, where we get to feel God's presence again. Uh, you know, this, this past week I was out of town for a few days, and, and the best feeling as a dad is when you come back from a trip from being away and that first hug with your kids, you know, and, and you hold them really tight. And it's not like you ceased being a dad the past couple of days, but in that moment, you feel the full weight of that reality. You remember, oh, like, this is why I love being a dad, you know, and then you feel you get to experience that again. I think this happens a lot in our own faith. You know, when we kind of, you know, especially for those of us who've grown up in the church, we have these moments where you can't explain it, but we feel like we're experiencing the love of God for the first time again. It might be one line in a worship song. It might be a conversation you have with a friend. It might be one passage in scripture that speaks to you where you just feel like, man, God feels so close to me. And this is what's happening in Acts 4 when the apostles pray the whole room shakes, and everyone is filled with the Holy Spirit. And I love that this happens in the midst of the persecution these apostles are facing because it's like God's little reminder when they need it the most. When God comes and he says, I'm still here. In case you forgot, I'm still here. Remember back in Acts 2? Remember how scared you were when I ascended to the Father and you didn't know what you were going to do and you didn't know how this was going to look and you didn't know how your life was going to turn out and you didn't know how you were going to do what I called you to do and I said, don't worry, you'll have all the power you need when the Holy Spirit comes and remember how the Holy Spirit came and all of a sudden miraculous things started happening and everything started to make sense. Remember that? In Acts 4, it's like God is saying, I'm still here. I still got you, and I will fill you with my presence when you need it the most. And so today, the first thing I want to say is if you find yourself in a difficult season in life, if you find yourself in a season where you feel confused or uncertain or lost, I want you to know whether you are new to the faith or you've been following Jesus for a while, know that you could be on the very cusp of a fresh move of the Holy Spirit in your life. Well, what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up. And that's what our passage today is all about, right? And I'm not sure if you caught this, 
But as we read verses 32 to 35, you may have thought to yourself, especially if you've been here for the past few weeks, man, this sounds really familiar. Like, I feel like this happened, and, and, and it's because it did. Okay, just two chapters ago in Acts 2, after the, after the Holy Spirit shows up at Pentecost, we read in verses 44 and 45 that all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. All the believers were together and had everything in common, and then they sold their stuff to share with everyone who had need. Well, what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up in Acts 4? We just read it. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Same exact result. And what is this telling us? It's, it's telling us that if the same thing happens the same way more than once, you probably should pay attention. And what this is implying is that when the Holy Spirit shows up, the result is always the same. Radical unity and radical generosity. Radical unity and radical generosity. You want to know if the Spirit is at work in your community or in your life? Here's the litmus test. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Radical unity. They shared everything they had. Radical generosity. I want to take this one piece at a time. So first, let's talk about radical unity. All the believers were one in heart and mind. What does that mean? Does it mean everyone in the church looked the same, talked the same, dressed the same, voted the same, they shared the same politics? We know that that can't be what it means because we know that in the early church, there were people of all different ages, all different backgrounds, all different experiences and personalities coming into the fold of the community every single day. Even the fact that in the text, we talk about some people having homes and resources, having to sell their possessions to help those in need, tells you there are huge income gaps in that community. And yet we read that all the believers were one in heart and mind. There was something knitting them together that was more important than age, class, background, or political preference. It's what Jesus prayed for in John 17 when he prays to the Father before he dies. And he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. And he's talking about his followers. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. He's saying, Father, the way people will know who you are and what you've done is not more content, it's not more sermon, it's not more theology. The way the world will know that you sent me and love them is when my followers are one as, as we are one. And the way Jesus and the Father are one is that they are absolutely distinct and yet absolutely inseparable. We believe in one God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so this is not a call to sameness or uniformity. It's a call to tether ourselves to those who are different from us. It's a call to radical unity. And yet I think it's so sad to think that that's not at all what we see in the church today. I think the church is more divided than the society in which we live. Even the way we talk about churches reflect this. We talk about churches being too left, too right, too conservative, too liberal, too old, too young, too many families, not enough families. Where our, our ideas of looking for a church has basically become synonymous with looking for a group of people 
who think like us, act like us, dress like us, and vote like us. About 20 years ago, a journalist, Bill Bishop, he wrote a book called The Big Sort, Why the Clustering of Like-Minded America is Tearing Us Apart. And he talks about this social phenomenon where over like the 50 years, basically from like 1950 to the year 2000, you saw this social phenomenon happening in America where the country was becoming more and more diverse. And yet because of technology, because of the way life was, somehow people were actually finding themselves in clusters of these neighborhoods, clusters of these churches, consuming news channels that were basically exactly like the lifestyle they wanted, right? That were most compatible with their beliefs. And this has only been amplified in the past few years with social media and people being able to work from home and now being able to live anywhere they want. And so the places we live and the content we consume and the people we're in community with have now become these huge echo chambers where we can kind of create a social algorithm for ourselves that allows us to interact with only those who agree with us on everything. And the church, the one place that should be different, sadly has become just another reflection of how polarized and ideologically inbred we've become as a society. And I think it's very funny, like I disagree with my parents on a lot of things, right? We have very different experiences. We grew up in different times. Um, you know, they've been shaped by different societal forces. We just see the world completely different. We argue all the time. But it doesn't change the fact that they're my parents. We're family. I'm stuck with them for better or for worse. And even though the primary motif Jesus uses when he describes his followers is the motif of family, he calls them my brothers and sisters. For some reason, I don't think we really see ourselves this way in the church. The moment someone says one thing that irks us, we're gone. The moment someone does one thing that rubs us a little bit wrong, we're gone. The moment a relationship gets hard, we're gone. You know, I spoke to a lot of pastors during the pandemic, and I asked them, what was the hardest thing for you pastoring during that season? And you know what they said? They said the hardest part of the pandemic for them was like seeing people who, who, who they'd known their entire lives. Like they'd watch them grow up in youth group. They'd pastor them through youth group. They watched them go to college. They married them. They baptized their children. They sat with them in seasons of anxiety and depression. And then because they said one thing that pissed them off about one of the many hot-button topics that came up in 2020, they were gone. And they said, it broke my heart. Contrary to what you have been trained to believe, sitting at a table with someone isn't an endorsement of all their views. When you think about the people Jesus chose to be in community with, it was everyone. Conservatives and liberals, healthy and sick, educated, uneducated, easygoing, high maintenance, Enneagram 8s, Enneagram 9s, okay? Like people that you would never think would be in community together. Even when you think about Jesus' 12 disciples, right, his closest group of friends, they spanned the whole political spectrum. At the same table, you had a former zealot. So this is a radical who wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And you had a tax collector, someone who was colluding with the Roman government. 
The God of the universe could have chosen any community for himself, and he chose people who at one point would never have been caught dead with each other. And it wasn't just that they tolerated each other. They loved each other deeply. And for a watching world, people were like, there's something different about that community. I long for citizens to be a community where people look at us and say, how are those people friends? Like, that doesn't make sense. Because honestly, you don't need the Holy Spirit to be friends with people who are like you. Like, we don't need the church to do that. We don't need God to help, because that's human nature, to be friends with people who are just like us, who follow who we follow, who operate on the same social strata as us. We're always going to want to gravitate toward those people because it's comfortable. But Jesus is saying the world will know what you believe when they see you in community with people you would never imagine yourself in community with. The more our circles include people who are different from us, the more we reflect the greatness of Jesus. And so let me ask you, is there anyone in your life right now that you're in community with? And I'm not just talking about someone you tolerate but someone you love, that you know you would never naturally be friends with, but you're friends simply because you both love Jesus. And if the answer to that question is no, you have to ask yourself, what is the thing that brings the two of you together, your friends together? You know, yesterday I officiated a wedding, and it was a beautiful wedding, and, and part of what makes weddings, I think, so profound is that you have all these different pockets of people who come together for this one singular moment, right? You have, you know, different communities. Um, you have, you know, you have the friends and family of the bride, the friends and family of the groom. Then you have, like, friends from different stages of the bride and groom's life, right? Like, their, their childhood friends, their college friends, you know, their before Christ friends, their after Christ friends, right? Like, you know, their co-workers. And it's like so interesting because as an efficient, you watch all these people walk in and it's like, oh my goodness, like they would never be in a room, these groups of people would never be in a room together. And everyone is talking and everyone is having their own side conversations. And I love people watching before the wedding starts. But something always happens the moment I say, if you're able, please stand for the entrance of the bride. And it's like the room quiets and all eyes are on one person, the bride. And in that moment, you are no longer fixated on the things that divide you. You are fixated on one thing. The bride. You know, I thought about this again like a few months ago. I took my daughter to a Laker game. Go Lakers. Lakers look good right now. I uh, took my daughter to a Laker game. And, you know, it was interesting. You know, like we're, we're cheering and it's a close game. The Lakers ended up winning. Everyone was going crazy. I turned around and gave the guy behind me a high five. As I'm in the middle of giving him a high five, I realize that he has, like, like his face has all these face tattoos, you know? And, like, as I'm giving him a high five, a thought went through my mind, like, like, I would be scared of this man, like, in any other setting but this setting, you know, and like I would never like, I'm, you know, I, I like picked up Avery and let her high five him too. I was like, never would I allow this to happen in any other setting. But why? In that moment, it's not what divides us. We're fixated on the same thing. 
in the same way when all of our eyes are collectively fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we experience a bond that is unlike any other human bond, a radical unity. But not only do we get a radical unity, we get a radical generosity. As soon as we read that all the believers were one in heart and mind, the very next line we read that no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. In fact, in verse 34, it says, there were no needy persons among them. Because from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Nobody told them to do that. Nobody forced them to do that. was not a top-down mandate. The Spirit showed up, and everyone just started looking for ways to serve each other. Imagine a community that was so sacrificial that there was not one needy person among them. Like, that is unimaginable, I think, to many of us, and yet this is what we see in the early church. No wonder the church grew daily in the midst of so much persecution, because people saw a generosity that was unexplainable. Like, I read this, and I'm like, dang, even as a pastor, sometimes I struggle to give someone even 30 minutes of my time, let alone sell my house to help someone in need. And yes, this is what we're seeing. And obviously this is not to say that everyone's going to leave here today and sell everything they have, but what we see in the early church is this posture of sacrifice and service where the first question is not what's in it for me, but what can I do for you? You know, as human beings, we are naturally selfish people. I mean, this is what sin has done, Right? We're naturally inclined to take, want to take care of number one, and it goes without saying that our culture is moving us in a direction of deeper self-absorption by creating products and services that are all about making my life easier, that cater to my needs and my comfort and my preferences, that get me the things that I need when I want them. And I think so many of us bring that exact mindset into the church where we're constantly asking, what can the church do for me? Where we say, okay, I'm new to this city, here are my needs, how will this church meet those needs? Because if I can't, I'll just go to another church. And yet this is not the posture we see in the church in Acts. We see a group of people whose first question is not, how can I be served? Their first question is, what do I have that can be of service to those around me? Let me tell you, every person in this room has a unique voice and a unique story. Y'all have incredible gifts, talents, passions, affinities. You know, I, I, I talk to people all the time in our church, and I am amazed at, like, the types of people we have in our community that are making real impacts in their specific industry and field. And sometimes I dream and I wonder what would happen in our church and in our city if every person, even in this room, just took inventory of all the money, time, talents, resources at his or her disposal and regularly asked the question, how can I serve those around me? I believe this church and this city would be transformed. Well, how do we cultivate this type of a community here, a community marked by radical unity and radical generosity. And the answer is found in verse 33, 
we read that as the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, this is the most important part, God's grace was powerfully at work in them all. God's grace was powerfully at work in them all. What fueled the early church's unity and generosity was that everyone recognized their need for the grace of God. People in the early church, they didn't have to try to be of one heart and one mind. They didn't need a pastor to stand up here and guilt trip, guilt trip them into giving away their money and their time and guilt trip them into give, sharing their possessions. Because when the grace of God takes a hold of your life, it changes everything. It changes the way you view people. It changes your relationship to money and power and influence. Right? Let me explain it like this. We live in what I would call a performance-based culture where people view themselves and others through the lens of position, prestige, pedigree, or popularity. Right? Where often the truest thing about you is your job title, right? Or where you went to school or your social media following. In a performance-based culture, we tend to view relationships transactionally. Like, what can this person do for me? We elevate certain people who we perceive to be more important than others, and we downgrade those people who we perceive don't offer us any benefit or are insignificant in our eyes. And all this is because in a performance-based culture, you believe that everything is up to you that you have to earn everything you have. And so because of that, you are constantly grasping for things. You are constantly grasping for wealth and power and status, and you lose your mind when you feel any of those things are being taken from you. You live your life with clenched fists, and you find yourself constantly insecure, constantly comparing yourself to other people, wondering if you're worthy or good enough. This is what happens in a performance-based culture. But in a grace-shaped community, every, everyone operates under the same exact assumption that they're broken and in need of a savior. That's it. And so you no longer view yourself and others through the lens of position, pedigree, or popularity. You view yourself and others through the lens of what you have all received in Christ. And what this truth does is that both lifts up the lowly and it humbles the proud. Because for those of you in here who feel like unworthy, for you who feel like you have less than, who feel like you're failing in life, it reminds you that you are deeply seen and loved by the creator of the universe. And for those who have much, for those in this room who have what the world deems, quote, as success, it reminds you that you're still broken and that no amount of money or power can save you from that brokenness. Grace levels the playing field. It equalizes the playing field. And when you are gripped by the reality of God's grace and the realization that everything you have is a gift, it changes the way you move through the world. You no longer operate from a place of insecurity. You no longer operate from a place of wanting to be loved and accepted. You operate from a place of confidence having received love and acceptance, and so you live your life with open hands, knowing there's nothing I could give that I haven't already received in Christ. You see, Jesus didn't just create community with people different from him. He created community with people who were the opposite of him. A holy, perfect God. 
tethered himself to imperfect human beings like you and like me. And he did not just tolerate us. He loved us so much that he became one of us. And he gave his life on a cross so that you and I might be called his sons and daughters. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is grace that unites us and it is grace that allows us to live with open hands. You know, I was on my plane ride back home on Thursday and I saw this poor dad traveling by himself with an infant and you could tell he was a first-time dad because this guy was struggling, right? And um, I don't know what his job is in the real world, okay? He could be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, okay? But this infant, like, broke him, okay? <laughs> he, they, I mean, he, he looked like he'd been through a war, and we're not, we're not even on the plane yet, okay? And we're about to board this flight, and he has this infant in his ergo, that, that thing you strap in front of you. And, of course, right as they're calling their group, baby throws up all over his arm. It's, like, all over the ergo, all over everything, and, and he, like, you can see, like, he's sweating, he's starting to panic. He, he's got to put the baby down so he can wipe himself off, but he's holding, like, a car seat in one hand. He's got two bags in the other hand, and it's, like, it's, it's a hot mess, okay? He, struggle city, okay? And basically, what, like, what I saw happen right before my eyes was incredible because it was, like, all the parents in the terminal just, like, united, like Captain Planet, for this one dad, okay? And they, it was not two seconds don't go by. Someone comes in with a box of wipes, right? This elderly grandma comes over, offers to hold the baby so that the man can wipe himself off. These parents who have kids of their own, they're offering to carry his bags, and they're all standing in line. I mean, I, I didn't help. I was just watching this whole situation. I was like, this is incredible, though, right? And they're all standing in line. Could not be more different and yet it was like all these parents were like, we're broken too. <laughs> We've been there too. We've all needed help too. We need grace too. And so we know what it's like to be in your situation. So we're going to do whatever we can to make this flight easy for you. We got you. I should have helped, but... <laughs> One thing I did start writing in my like, iPhone was like, that is a perfect snapshot of a grace-shaped community. People who you thought, like who you would never imagine together in the same space, loving and serving and sacrificing for one another, acknowledging that I'm broken just like you're broken, and I need grace just like you need grace. And so this is my hope and my prayer for citizens, that we too, like the early church, would become a spirit-filled community known for our radical unity and our radical generosity. Let's pray. As always, I want to give us a moment as our praise team comes back up to respond to this word. I want to do two things on the, top, on the theme of unity and generosity. The first thing I want you to do is I want you to think of one person in your life or in this community 
that maybe you're having a difficult time with or you're struggling with. And I want you to pray for that person. That in prayer, I want you to know what it feels like to tether yourself to a person in the love of Christ that you would normally never be in community with. Pray for that person. And the second thing I want us to do on the topic of radical generosity is I want you to ask God to reveal to you what are the things that you have in this season of your life, whether it's time, a home, um, capacity, bandwidth, resources that you can offer at Jesus' feet for the service of those in this community. Ask God to reveal that to you. Lord, thank you for this word today. First, we thank you for your grace. Your grace that has saved us, that frees us from the bondage of sin. Your grace shown to us on a cross. And God, I pray that you would allow us in this moment, you would open our hearts to receive again the reality of the grace we've received, the love and mercy we've been shown. And God, I pray that the reality of that would give us the power and the desire to tether ourselves to people different from us and to give our lives to those in need. God, I thank you for this community of believers that you've gathered together here from all parts of the globe, from all parts of this country, and you've gathered us all here together to follow Jesus in this city for your glory. And I pray that each week as we gather together, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and you would empower and equip us to take all the ways that we've been blessed, to take all the gifts we've been given, and to use it for your glory, for the kingdom. We thank you so much for your love and your grace. We worship you, give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.